Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me nice and clear? Yeah. Uh, so, um, it's been fantastic, hasn't it? Just this morning to uh, sit here and uh, I've been sat at the front and I've been listening to all of these extraordinary things that different people are involved in. Things that we're doing as a community here, things that um, uh, Joel and uh, 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 Fiona are doing. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, the just the spread of what's going on. And of course, underneath all of that is what you're doing every day of your life. It's what I'm doing for all our mistakes and our shortcomings and failings. Our task, wherever we work, whatever we're doing, whatever we're involved in, is to build God's kingdom together. So, this morning, um, we are looking at the rough guide to the Apostles' Creed again. And as you've uh, just uh, been told, as Kate's just told us, we're looking at this tricky line. Because right in the middle of all of this comes this line. And he, that's Jesus in context, will come to judge the living and the dead. We spent the whole of this morning thus far singing about God's love. We've sung about how God's rich in love and God's rich in mercy. We had that poem from the kids about the church is for everyone. We celebrate our inclusion constantly. But right at the heart of our Christian faith, we've been told is this concept. He will come to judge. We might be inclusive. We might be loving. We might be these things. But in the end, God's going to get some people. <laughs> now, isn't it extraordinary that we can go our whole lives believing and holding these two things that aren't in balance, that just sit there independently of one another? God really loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but if you turn your back on him, you will be fried. You'll die. You'll be judged. And we somehow sail along with all of this without ever stopping to ask how it all adds up. Probably because we don't know how it all adds up and probably because we think somebody else, somewhere else, ought to know how it all adds up. But we never talk about it. What I'd like to do is talk about judgment. The Bible, it seems, or Christianity in the church is full of the message of God loves you and is inclusive, but it's also full of another message, and that message is about hell, fire, judgment, wailing, weeping, and the gnashing of teeth. How does all this fit together? That's what I'd like to talk about. Now, the church is, of course, a gracious or should be a gracious, ongoing discussion. If we read the Bible well, and we've dealt with this before, and I realise some of you, you know, people, you, you guys, you join the church in, at this church, and you may have missed stuff that we've said before, but if we keep on saying it, people who've been here a long time go, oh, you're not banging on about that again, are you? So the problem is this, that when we come to uh, deal with any subject, we have to think about it in its wider context. But if I or any other preacher on a Sunday morning talks about our subject in its wider context, we'll be here till three o'clock. That's the problem for so many of us as Christians. We actually, we, we struggle to put in the time, but we want to know the answers. You know, you can't know the answers unless you get the big picture. And everything that's said on any Sunday morning fits into the big picture. And part of the big picture, there's loads of this on our uh, open church. We run a website which is called openchurch.network. It's got loads of resources there and videos and a whole huge amount of material relating to how we read the Bible. If we read the Bible wrongly, we will always end up in a muddle. So how we read the Bible is actually the most important question. It's not one of the questions, it is the question. And everything else that we think are big issues are simply symptoms of tackling the big question. So, without getting too much into detail, but saying something that's really important at this moment... The Bible itself is a collection of books, 
Bible means library, holy means different. Holy Bible means different kind of library. Literally, that's what it means. And the library is filled with books. The Protestant Bible, where Protestants, not Catholics, has 66 books. The Catholic Bible has 73 books. The uh, the um, Orthodox Bible has more books than that. I, it's not that I don't know the number. It's that different parts of the Orthodox Church have a slightly shorter or slightly longer Bible. But the Bible is the library of holy texts, sacred texts, texts that have been honoured by the church through 2,000 years because these are texts that teach us something of God. But actually, if you read those texts, they clash with one another. And uh, so, an illustration some of you would have heard me use before, just one, but there are many. If you read Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 1 clashes with Genesis chapter 2. It says different things. People who say, I believe the whole Bible, you need to say, would you believe Genesis chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 2? Because they clash with one another if you choose to believe that they're historic records, which of course they're not. They're rich poems that teach us and and one is a parable, one's a poem that teaches deeper truths. But then there are clashes of opinion. Nehemiah, if you read his book, he's got a whole book in the Old Testament, it's a journal really, he rebuilt the walls of the city of Jerusalem and as he built, he journaled and as he finished the walls of the city of Jerusalem, you could read this in the last chapter of his book, chapter 13, you can read how Nehemiah looks round the newly rebuilt Jerusalem and he sees that some people in the city have married foreigners. And he's a nationalist. He's built Jerusalem for Jews, not for anyone else. And some of them have even married Moabite women. Nehemiah is thrown into a rage. He takes these Moabite women along with others and those who married them and he pulls them. He actually says, and I dragged them by the hair and I threw them out of Jerusalem. That's real abuse. Here's the strange thing. There's another book in the Old Testament called Isaiah and it says something quite different. It says that in the new Jerusalem, people of all nations will gather and everyone will be welcome. And Nehemiah's saying, no, 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 I'm a nationalist. It's for Jews. And Isaiah's saying, yes, 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 it's for everyone. And Jesus chooses to quote Isaiah and not Nehemiah. And there's another book in the Old Testament, which goes by the name of Ruth, which is all about a Moabite woman who becomes one of the ancestors of Jesus. She is the example of faith in action and she's honoured. So you see, the Bible is filled with different voices, not because uh, it's a flawed library, but because a library needs to be filled with different voices and we listen to those voices and we debate and discuss them so that Bible itself promotes an ongoing discussion in the church, and we are the church, a gracious ongoing discussion. So I'm going to talk about judgment and hell and um, fire and brimstone and all of that, and inclusion for everyone, and the God of love. But it's a gracious ongoing discussion. You may agree with me, you may not agree with me. As some of you would have heard me say before, a great sermon shouldn't be, and I'm not claiming this will be a great one at all, but a great sermon, <laughs> a great sermon shouldn't be something that you all go and go, oh, wasn't that wonderful? A really great sermon should be something that gets you to go away and debate and discuss and say, I agree with that, I don't agree with that. The way I see it is this, he's not thought of that because that's what makes the church healthy. If we can debate and discuss without falling out with one another and consigning one another to hell just because we have a difference of opinion, that, that consigning, he's apostate. She's a heretic. That is the ultimate immaturity. And it's high time the church climbed out of that and could have a discussion about the things that matter. Because if we can't, the only place to have the discussions is somewhere else. And how many people do you know who've left the church simply because 
they couldn't talk within the church about the things that really needed to be talked about. So I'm going to talk about all of this uh, briefly. He will come to judge the quick and the dead. And I leave you to debate, to think about it, to agree, to disagree, because that is what it means to be the church and live in the light of this library of books we've been given just as a discussion starter. So, um, here is a quote. This is from... I'll read, well, let's read the quote together. Uh, it, uh, when they, the saved, the ones that are going to heaven, shall see the smoke of their torment, that's the damned who are going to be in hell, you know, burning forever, gnashing teeth, etc., etc., and the raging of the flames of their burning, and hear their dolstrous, is that how do you say it, shrieks and cries, and consider they, in the meantime, are in the most blissful state, they shall surely be uh, in it to all eternity, how they will rejoice." This is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards uh, was a great revivalist preacher in the States, in the eastern states of, uh, you know, Connecticut. He grew up in, and he's very, very famous, very, very famous at all. He wrote uh, uh, an extraordinary sermon, which is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he says to his congregation, you're all dangling over hell. You deserve to die. It's his most famous sermon ever. But this comes from his book. All of those who are blissfully happy in heaven are going to look over. And as they see those who are damned burning in hell forever, they are going to be blissfully happy and rejoice. He lived in the uh, 1700s. Now, he got this view because he was a follower of John Calvin. He was a Calvinist. And of course, John Calvin, that great, um, that great uh, reformer, taught that God chose who was going to be saved before the foundation of the earth. That when you were born, when we are born, we are born into sin. We don't, we're not sinners because of the wrong things we do. We are sinners in our very conception and birth, and we do wrong things because of who we are. And that many of us, most of us, the majority of earth, actually, uh, Calvin taught, are under God's judgment from the day they're born. You're not one of the elect. You will not inherit God's heaven. And John Calvin's followers came to believe in something that was called double predestination. Therefore, some people were predestined before they were born, before the foundation of the earth, to go to heaven, whereas all the rest were destined for hell and burning. That's why, um, that's why um, uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, believed this. Here's another one, a contemporary of Jonathan Edwards. He lived in the 1700s. Famous uh, hymn writer. You've heard of him. Isaac Watts. Have you heard of Isaac Watts? If you've not, you know his most famous song, but he wrote 600 hymns. His most famous song we've sung at Christmas time, it's called Joy to the World. You know, do you know that one? Joy to the World. Da, 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 da. You know that? Yeah? <laughs> so here's another line from one of his other hymns. Not sung quite so often anymore. What bliss will fill the ransomed souls when they in glory dwell to see the sinner as he rolls in quenchless flames of hell. Yeah! It's got a great rhythm to it, you can tell. Those are Isaac Watts' lines. But he wrote them in the 1700s. He wrote them 200 years after John Calvin. John Calvin, of course... Uh, gained most of his theology from Augustine of Hippo, that great theologian bishop. Um, John Calvin quotes Augustine more than a thousand times in his writing. His writings were called the Institutes. I'm not recommending you read them. When I was at theology college, we had to. I skipped a lot of it, but there's a lot of Augustine in it. Someone once said, 
Uh, someone once said that what Augustine took the worst of St. Paul and, then, and Calvin took the worst of Augustine and that's what we built Western Christianity on. I'm, not to, I'm just trying to get you to think. I'm not telling you what's right, wrong. I'm just, these are facts, but your task is, your, your task is to think about them. These things have been said. These things have been taught. So, where did this whole idea of hell come from? Well, here's the funny thing. The idea of hell, or the afterlife, or the underworld, is a very ancient one. And Mesopotamia, as you know, that great fertile belt uh, where these superpowers, the first superpowers, uh, emerged, the people of uh, Sumer, and then after uh, Sumer, you get the Babylonians, etc., etc., etc. All of those great superpowers lived in Mesopotamia. And uh, the, uh, in Sumer, because this is now modern-day Syria, etc., it's that belt, we, uh, our archaeologists have dug up endless clay tablets, etc., etc. So we have a really good understanding of the teachings of these ancient civilizations. In Sumer, uh, people believed in the afterlife. But here's the thing. I'm, and by the way, I'm skipping quickly over all this. You can talk to me over coffee about the in-depth of what the uh, Sumer documents say, the tablets say, or anything else I say. This is just a kind of woo quick thing, because otherwise you will be here for hours. Do you know? But in Sumer, uh, there was an afterlife. And uh, the afterlife was dark. The reason the afterlife was dark is because the sun rose in the morning and the sun descended in the evening and it disappeared into darkness and then it rose again. So it was clear that human beings rose and lived and then descended into darkness. So the idea of the underworld and the afterlife, that underworld idea, comes from that ancient understanding of the circle of life. It's in all cultures, including Christian culture. So what happens is... In Sumer, they believed that everybody died, and regardless of what you did, you got the same afterlife. They didn't know much about it, but they assumed it was there because the sun always came up again. So they assumed there was an afterlife, and you could be a saint or a sinner, not terms they used, of course, but you could live the way you chose, but you got the same deal. Not much was known about it. That's how it fell out. How could you know about it? because no one had been there and come back. So we just, you know, picked up. That's the way it was. Then, of course, uh, I have to skip across the Egyptians, but the Egyptians, in the middle kingdom of the Egyptians, write this down if you're the kind of person who writes things down and makes lists and wants to look things up. You've got to look at the middle kingdom, the middle kingdom, and you've got to look at what's called the Egyptian Book of the Dead. If you understand the Egyptian Book of the Dead and the feather of truth, and when you die, the Egyptians believed that your body wasn't, your thoughts weren't controlled by your head, but your heart. We still believe that, which is why we say, you stole my heart. My heart was given to you. We're still caught between that Egyptian understanding and a Western understanding of brain. So that's where the big heart thing going on in our culture comes from. It comes from the Egyptians, and they believe that on death, everybody would appear before faulty gods who would judge them, and your heart would be weighed on the scales of justice. And if your heart was lighter than an ostrich feather, the feather of truth, you would go to be with the gods forever, but if your heart was heavier because it was guilty than the feather of truth, then you would descend into the underworld and you journey through the underworld, but there was always some kind of redemption for you because your relatives could pray for you, you could take bribes with you into your tomb so you could pay people off, and if you knew the incantations, incantations and the prayers, you'd make it through. Basically, um, they believed in a kind of Satan figure. He was called Amit, actually, and he was a kind of crocodile hippopotamus figure with huge jaws, and if you really were bad, you'd end up in his jaws. Snacks forever. But in all um, Egyptian writing, there's never any evidence that this warning that was given to everyone, this is all going to come important in a minute, this warning that was given to everyone was ever fulfilled for anyone. There is no evidence in all Egyptian writing that anybody ever ended up in the jaws of Amit. 
really interesting. Now you say, but we're in church. We're not here to discover stuff about ancient Egyptian religion, etc. Ideas travel. One culture pushes its ideas into the next culture and the next culture and the next culture and the next culture and the next culture. So, the Egyptians, big superpower in the same belt, yeah, of earth. Here comes another big superpower. They're called the Greeks, Homer, you know, the blind author. Probably not an author, but a group of authors, as as you know. Um, But um, Homer, he writes the Odyssey, and the Iliad, if you read the Odyssey, I'm not recommending you read the Odyssey either. It's much better to just read bits of these things. But if you read the Odyssey, what happens is, is uh, it tells the story of a journey into the underworld and terrible things that happen in the underworld because down in the underworld, everyone is a shade, which means spirit or soul or ghost. Shade. You've heard that term, have you? You're down, they're shades because they're just shades. They're just shallow images of what they were on earth. And though there are one or two people that are caught in hell forever, actually most people journey through it. Most people journey through the underworld and then they rise to the afterlife. That's Homer. In the next great empire, superpower, Rome. We're getting very close to Christianity now, you see. (laughs) Rome, Virgil, you've heard of Virgil, he picks up, he picks up what um, Homer has written about and he writes a thesis, it's another poem by the way, all these people are poets, he writes another poem like Homer and his poem copies Homer's poem and again it's about the underworld and how he travels through it and he sees these terrible things going on but the thing is about the underworld in all of these cultures is that you can go there you can learn and that you can return they're kind of like lessons in morality it's like I travel through and I'm cleansed which is where the idea of purgatory comes from to purge away to burn away in some, in some ways what's wrong to the purifying place Now, this all gets complicated, so I'm not going to get too complicated. I really, I'm trying not to. In fact, I didn't mean to say all that bit. That's not in these notes at all. So, uh, (laughs) I just, honestly, I'm going, oh, blow, where are we? Oh, yeah, it's kind of. So, these ideas slowly enter uh, Christian thinking. And, oh, yeah. I, I've now got to, get, I've got to get back to what I was actually going to talk about. So what happens is this. These are all pre-Christian ideas. But in the, in the Old Testament, the, uh, the word that has been translated wrongly as hell is shol. Uh, S-H-O-E-L. Yeah? Shol. Uh, is the E before the O. Yeah, yeah, Sarah. Yeah. It's hard to spell backwards. I'm trying to write it backwards for you there. <laughs> all right. Um, so, so basically what happens is this is just the place, the underworld, the place of the dead. It's full of shades and ghosts. In fact, there's a, a story in the Old Testament uh, where the witch of Endor conjures up a spirit from the dead for Saul, the spirit of Samuel. And the witch of Endor is in endless trouble because she's called up the shade of this great prophet from the underworld. It's, uh, it's not on. You're not to do it. Deuteronomy says, don't get involved in the things of the underworld. But there's no defined doctrine or understanding of what happens to people after death except they descend into this underworld where it's boring. They wait. Everything's grey. There's shades. But you're hoping God for the best. But then, in uh, the New Testament... Um, after the New Testament, I should say, uh, in the western half of the church, which we live in, which, is, which had, for its language, it was run by the, uh, the Romans. It was, it was the Latin half of the church, the western half of the church, the European half of the church, us, in other words, as opposed to the eastern half of the church, the orthodox half of the church, the Greek-speaking half of the church. These two, in the first four centuries, they began to go their own separate ways. And what happened was this, is that um, Constantine became uh, a Christian. As you know, this 
you know, this great emperor who went into battle with the cross on his shields and all that, slaughtering everybody and all that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, Christianity became adopted as the faith of Rome. You know that, don't you? It was the imperial religion, imperial Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, imperial Catholicism. That's what the term Roman Catholicism means. There were other types of Catholicism around, but Roman Catholicism was the type that Constantine got hold of. Does that make sense? Yeah? And now, um, they forcibly made people Christians. And Christianity became the religion of the superpower state, which invaded countries and said, you've got two choices, die in the morning or convert and be baptized. That's how it was. That's how the Romans went forward. And scholars across the board will all tell you this that there was never a kind of proselytizing faith until then. There was never a deep doctrine of your turn or burn. There was never a deep doctrine of there are people who will die, but you can find your way out of it if you get converted until that point. And there still isn't in the whole eastern half of the church. The proselytizing, as I've just said, turn or burn came with an empire religion that wanted everybody to be in what they believed. Does that make sense? Western Christianity, as it began to proselytize and seek converts, intensified this story. Because, you see, if you really want to get converted, people converted, the best way to do it is, first of all, scare them to death. And secondly, offer them a way out of it. Let me say that again. If you really want to get people converted, scare them stupid. And then offer them the way out. That's what happened in the 4th century. There were, there were bits of it before. Um, there's a guy called Tertullian, for instance. Bits of it before. But it was in the 4th century and Augustine was the theologian of empire. Now, I'm not, you know, I mentioned all these people. I'm not trying to write them off. I'm saying we're all, you know. Martin Luther King said this. He said, there's some bad in the best of us and there's some good in the worst of us. We want to divide the world up, don't we, into good guys and bad guys. We're the good ones and everybody else is bad. But we're all struggling. That's why it's an ongoing conversation. So, this is what happened. And what happened was, then the teaching of Augustine, this turn or burn, get yourself sorted out, here we come, the Roman Empire, you know, scare them stupid and then tell them they can be saved, that was taken up by poets. It was taken up by the poet, poet Dante. And Dante wrote a long, long poem called The Divine Comedy, you know, uh, with the, in three parts, the first part called Inferno, and it doesn't half sound like Virgil, and it doesn't half sound like Homer. In fact, Virgil is Dante's guide through hell, which you can still travel through and come out, but now he fills hell not with shades, it's not dull and boring. In, uh, in Homer, in Virgil, the underworld, the afterlife is dull, boring and dreary and no one really knows what's going to happen but you trust in the gods to get you through. But in Dante's hell, it's not boring at all. It's deadly. Dante is the first poet to write about a Christian concept of hell and it's more terrifying and horrendous and scary than anything. Now, here's a funny thing. I've talked about a bunch of poets. Homer. I've talked about Virgil. I've talked about Dante. And then there's the artist who lives just, his life slightly overwraps with uh, Dante, actually. Bosch. Have you seen Bosch's in a Dutch painter? You should look up Bosch. And he's got these grotesque monsters. And they're all depictions of hell, where people are being pushed down into hell, and they're being chewed on, and half human and half reptile. And this, these were the paintings that filled the walls of the Western church. Scare them stupid and then offer them a way out, which at that time was to pay an indulgence. You're going to die. 
If you pay us, we're the church. There's redemption. Um, and then, of course, came Michelangelo. And Michelangelo is uh, given the chance to paint the wall of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican City, and he paints the Last Judgment. And the, if you ever see, if you ever have the chance to go to Roman or just, uh, and, and see this wall, it's huge. It's the whole wall. It is Dante in paint. There is a guy being dragged down into hell by his testicles. The nudity is horrendous. After, after Michelangelo died, do you know that the Catholic Church ordered clothes to be painted onto everyone? And if you go there, there still are. They've removed some of the clothes again, but, but, but still you'll see clothing on some of the people in that painting because it was so shocking. People being dragged into hell, pulled down, chewed up. Hell was bad. And those who were in heaven looked down and enjoyed it. <laughs> Why did they enjoy it? Because as Thomas Aquinas, another great theologian, said, you're in heaven and everything's bliss. So how can the suffering of the damned in hell spoil your bliss? God enjoys it, you enjoy it. You look down and you smile. I'm covering about a thousand years of theology in that statement. There you go. So now on to, to um, the 1980s. John Stott used to be the vicar of um, uh, uh, All Souls Langham Place. He died just a few years ago. John was a great writer and thinker and preacher, fantastic man. Here's a quote from it. Well, it's some quotes I've put together. They're all from the same book that he wrote in 1988. I am not and cannot be a universalist. I don't believe a universalist means that everyone will be saved in the end. Um, and, he, and this is me writing. He was never able, he says, though, to conjure up the appalling vision of millions who are not only perishing, but will inevitably perish. He's talking about Calvinism, you see. He's saying, in Calvinism, you, you know, they, these people are just born to die. And I just can't believe that that would be true, says, uh, says John Stott. And between these two extremes, he cherished this hope that the majority, this is a quote from him in his book, the majority of the human race will be saved. Well, if the majority of the human race are going to be saved, the majority of the human race aren't Christians. This is a far cry, and it's 200 years uh, from Jonathan Edwards. Do you see how it's changing? So here's Tom Wright, writing just after um, uh, it, the, the millennium. Well, actually, uh, more than that, he's saying this in response to a book that Rob Bell wrote called Love Wins. He's, uh, Tom says this, I'm not a universalist either, that's you know, the picture that Rob was hinting at in his book, everyone's saved by the love of God. I'm not a universalist. I've never been a universalist. Someone quoted a theologian saying, I'm not a universalist, but maybe God is. <laughs> That's clever, isn't it? Tom's my friend. That is really clever, isn't it? <laughs> I'm totally ducking the issue there, but I've heard that there's another theologian that said, I'm not a universalist, but maybe God is. Well, if God may be, is, why aren't you? And who is this other theologian that's quoted somewhere? But can you see how this is a million miles from John Calvin? It's a, it's a million miles from Jonathan Edwards. It's a million miles from Isaac Watts. It's changing. But everybody's reading the same Bible. John Stott reads the same Bible as John Calvin and comes to a completely different conclusion. Tom Wright, he comes to a different conclusion. Karl Barth was a really great theologian. A proper, you know, I was going to say a proper theologian. John and Tom are obviously proper theologians. <laughs> what I meant by that, as if you're listening to this, is that Carl, Tom and John are, uh, uh, Tom is a brilliant theologian. John uh, was a great great theologian. Karl Barth was a master theologian. 
He stood up to Hitler in the Second World War. He died in the 1970s. He was one of the few German church leaders. Uh, he was the greatest theologian of the 20th century, as I'm sure uh, John Stott would say and Tom Wright would definitely say. This is what Karl Barth said. I don't believe in universalism, everyone being saved, but I do believe in Jesus Christ, the reconciler of all. Clever statement, because it's another way of dodging the issues. I don't believe in universalism, but I believe in Jesus, who will reconcile all. Do you see? By the way, um, uh, uh, Karl Barth said this near to the time when he made that other famous statement on his last lecture to a um, of the states, a very elderly man. Uh, he wrote a huge book called Church Dogmatics, which is longer than the Institutes, uh, by John Calvin. And um, uh, uh, he's touring, and he's asked by some students in a particularly kind of conservative place, a university, what his greatest theological insight is. And do you know what he says? Uh, Karl Barth, this famous, world-famous professor of theology, who's, who's kind of reinvented Calvinism, really, completely. Reinvented Calvinism completely. He stands there and he looks at this very conservative, you turn or you burn, you're in or you're out kind of student. And he says this, my greatest theological insight, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That was his answer. And it was a great theological answer because we're followers of Jesus and we can get bogged down in these traditions that get passed on and changed. And when Karl Barth said this, he had in mind this verse, 2 Corinthians verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, says Paul, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, of not counting people's sins against them. And Paul writes again in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. And I know that Karl Barth was thinking of this. He's a clever man. For God was pleased to have all this fullness dwell in him, that's in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. All things, not some things, not most things, not the majority of things, all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. All things reconciled. The Bible's full of this phrase, or we think it's full of this phrase, the wrath of God. God's anger, God's out to get you. God hands over people, his wrath hangs, hands people over. Um, years and years ago, um, I was speaking at an event with Jonathan Sachs. Do you know he used to be the chief rabbi? And uh, I was sat waiting to speak, so was Jonathan, and we, we sat there together. So I, I, Jonathan Sachs is a very, very wise man and understands Hebrew <laughs> and has understood it from birth, basically. So whispering to Jonathan Sachs, I said, I said to him, Jonathan, you know, one of the things that's always bothered me is all these references to God's wrath in the Old Testament. Like, it's really scary stuff. Uh, Jonathan uh, Sachs said to me, the ra chief rabbi, he, he smiled at me and he said, ah, Steve, he said, this is always the problem when Christians read the Hebrew Bible but don't understand Hebrew and fail to ask Hebrew scholars what the words mean. It's a mistake, he said with a smile. And then he said this, you'll see that the term wrath in the Old Testament, which I've subsequently learned, there's a whole collection of words that are translated anger or wrath. But he smiled at me, he said, it's much better to translate the term wrath as anguish. It's the anguish of God, not the wrath of God. I'm a dad, and a granddad as it happens now, but I'm a dad and I've learned, even at the end of my life is deeply flawed, let me tell you. But I've learned this, 
that being a parent isn't about getting a balance between love and anger. Being a parent is all about love. All about love. Sometimes, as a parent, I've been angry, or as, you know, just as a person, I've been angry outside of love far too often. And it always leaves me with deep regrets. Whenever my anger operates outside the context of my love, I'm always left apologizing. Always left apologizing. Karl Barth, that great theologian, once said this. To speak of God's anger or God's wrath or God's judgment are simply other ways of talking about his love. Outside of the context of God's love, all of these words will be misinterpreted. I was watching a little bit behind time, the last episode of that thing on BBC with uh, Cornelia, my wife, the other night, Split. Did any of you see that? And it's, a, it's an extraordinary story. But uh, the mother of the kids who's in this story, they're all lawyers, she looks at one of her daughters and one of her daughters says to me, says to her, you hate me, don't you? And she says, and she's a harsh mother, but she looks at her daughter, a grown daughter, and she says, no, I don't hate you. I'm just disappointed. Everyone who's a parent in this place, everyone who's a friend in this place, knows this. That when our anger gets the better of us outside the context of love, we're ashamed. God is love. I heard somebody speaking on Radio 4 the other week on a Sunday morning talking about the balance of God's love and anger and I thought he needs to listen to Jonathan Sachs. There's not a balance between love and anger. I'm I'm a dad. I've got to get the love bit in and I've got to get the anger bit in and I've just got to keep them in right balance. Love is the way. And love will know anguish. And love will be upset. And love will be let down. And love, for any parent, will sometimes be, well, it'll just be thrown in your face sometimes. But you keep on loving. It's the anguish of God. And as for the judgment of God, what is the judgment of God? It is the judgment of God. And God is love. So God's judgment is just. Miroslav Volf, I am going to stop. Miroslav Volf is another great world-class theologian. And Miroslav, whom I've never met, um, he uh, lives in the States now, but he grew up in Eastern Europe, and uh, he writes great theology. But he writes, uh, he, he writes and he says, all, those we- all you softy Westerners, he doesn't call us, he says we are soft. He says, if you live in the West of Europe, you're soft. If you live in the East, you've seen butchery. You've seen butchery, and so God has to step in and judge. But I'd like to say to um, uh, Miroslav, I will say to Miroslav, Miroslav, I think you're wrong. I think you're wrong. I think you're wrong. I deeply think you're wrong. Why? Because I am responsible for 50 schools. And in all our schools, what we do is this. In each one of our schools, we take a therapeutic approach to education. I know that the kid who kicks off and is angry and lashes out is the kid who actually needs help. We understand now, don't we, a therapeutic approach to education. We understand that the kid who comes from a background where he's always been treated as trash isn't going to get anywhere if you stand him in a corner and treat him as trash again. We've come past that. We know that those who commit crime actually are those who've had crime committed against them. We're understanding that the inner journey of a person is important. And if we're getting towards a therapeutic approach to mental health, if we're getting towards a trauma-based approach to all these things, I've been into two prisons in the last few months and I've seen the way that the best prisons deal with these issues. I'm engaged in a conversation with government at the moment about whether Oasis might start a secure school which is really to replace the detention centres that are failing. The detention centres are failing. Do you know one of the secretaries of state responsible for justice, uh, one before Michael Gove, Chris Grayling, 
told me this, told me this, I think on these premises. He said it costs five times as much to send a kid to Feltham as it does to send them to Eton. But they're all re-offending within 18 months. Why? Because it doesn't work. And we're learning a therapeutic approach to understand the trauma in a person to turn them around. If even we can get to that, why doesn't God understand that? Of course God understands that because God is love. There are three words, well, there are more, but the three big words uh, in the Bible for hell, Shoal, Hades, and Gehenna. Shoal is the Old Testament word, which means to go down into the place of the dead, and as we talked about that, Hades is the Greek word that translates soul, uh, Shoal, and it just means, uh, Shoal is in there 57, 58 times, I think. Hades in the New Testament is used uh, 11 or 12 times, and it simply translates uh, this. This is not a quote from me. This is a quote from a uh, PhD thesis that I read parts of. Um, Shoal is Hebrew for grave, and de- the, uh, this should be in quote marks, grave or death, with resurrection in view. Because the Jews always believe that you come through Shoal, the place of the shadows, into light, the light of God. Hades is a translation, so they always, it always believed that you come through that into a place of light. Then it says, Gehenna is Greek for destruction without resurrection in view. Wrong, I think. Completely wrong, I think. I think it misses the point. When Rob, my friend Rob, published his book, Love Wins, um, he was attacked by a whole bunch of people. Tom uh, Wright disagreed with him. Another friend of mine called Steve Holmes, who's on that same uh, theological um, faculty as, as Tom, said, what, what Rob doesn't understand is the term Gehenna is just a name for a rubbish dump outside Jerusalem where, you know, child sacrifice had happened, that people were, children were sacrificed, and it was turned into the city, the municipal rubbish dump, uh, for ages, for years and years and years. It's Gehenna. Well, that's the problem. And then uh, um, Steve says that to- Rob doesn't understand that. I'm sure Rob does understand that, by the way. But um, the point is this. The Rubbish tumps always burning. The problem is that in our English Bibles, most translations have translated Gehenna into hell. But it was just a rubbish dump outside Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, live this way. It's like living on a rubbish dump. It's like burning. It's a stench. It stinks. Get away from it. But, says Steve, what uh, Rob also doesn't understand is that... Um, that there are extra biblical stories. There's a book called Enoch, um, one Enoch especially, that says Gehenna is a place of everlasting fire. Rob doesn't understand that, he says. I don't know if Rob understands that or not, because um, I've not talked to Rob about it. But let me tell you something that Steve might have missed. Jeremiah, the Old Testament. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, um, uh, when let's, let's skip on to uh, halfway down in verse 39 because I'm running out of time, we're so late and the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes will be renewed that's what that's saying or from Joel on that day the mountains will drip with new wine and the hills will flow with milk all the ravines of Judah including the valley of Gehenna will run with water. If you read the Old Testament, Gehenna is a dark place, but there's redemption on its way. And that is the word that Jesus always uses that gets translated as hell. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. I've talked for far too long. It's nearly quarter two. The kids are crying outside. So, <laughs> so let me finish by just, why did I get Danielle? We asked Danielle to read that story because I think it's been misquoted endlessly. Jesus is dying on a cross. There are two thieves dying each side of him. One curses him. Everybody's cursing him. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see, he understands it, a therapeutic approach, a trauma-based approach. Jesus doesn't say, Father, condemn them because they're evil. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do, none of these people. 
And then out of that, one thief turns to Jesus and says, you're dying. For not, we deserve to die, but not you. Remember me. And Jesus says this, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. And you know, because we see this all through spectacles that the Bible's got nothing to say about, we decide, oh, the other thief gets hell. This one gets saved. Where does it say that? All it says is Jesus, when he sees this chaos, says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them all. They don't know what they're doing. And one thief turns to him and says, remember me. And Jesus says to him, I can assure you today you'll be with me in paradise. We have assumed that means that the other thief is condemned to hell. We've added to the text of the Bible. The message of the Bible, I believe, is you're all in. God is love. Christ is redeeming all things, all things to himself. We're all in. Now we should live like it. We're all in. Now just live like it. If you want to call that universalism, which is a strange old term, I think, call it that. I prefer it to call it the redemptive love of Christ. The redemptive love of God who in Christ is reconciling everything, including all of us to others. So lastly, why then, people say to me, if that's true, why bother to become a Christian? And in that moment, they give away everything. The only reason I'm a Christian is because it's kind of like insurance policy to get out of hell. Why tell people about Christ? Why go into the world? Why tell everyone? Because this is the best way to live. When Christ's redemptive love touches your life and you realise that the scars of the past are forgiven, but we realise that God's on our side. You're all in. Now live like it. God bless you.